Welcome back to the Lehigh Valley Arts Podcast, where we will explore the local arts culture and community in the Lehigh Valley. We'll be doing this through conversations with individual artists, administrators, and organizations. We'll discuss all types of mediums with the goal of enriching local arts culture. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Lehigh Valley Arts Podcast. I'm Andrea Zaya, curator at the National Museum of Industrial History, situated in Bethlehem, PA, on the site of the former Bethlehem Steel Corporation's Bethlehem plant in the 1913 Electrical Repair Shop building. Our museum opened in 2016 and aims to forge a connection between our industrial past to inspire the visionaries of tomorrow. And one of the highlights of my job is working with our Bethlehem Steel collection and learning from former steelworkers and employees of the corporation. One of the most interesting former Bethlehem Steel employees that I've had the pleasure to work with is Bruce Ward. Hello, Bruce. Hi, Andrea. How are you today? I'm good. I'm very good. And I'm really looking forward to a conversation with you to learn a little bit more about your experience. And you've had many vocations and avocations attached to your name over the years. A rigger, an artist, a photographer, a filmmaker, and a magician. And uh, let's talk about how you've been involved in Come to This Place. Well, uh, I started at the Steel in 1973. Before that, I had a myriad number of jobs locally in Bethlehem. I was born and raised in Bethlehem. I have lived here all my life. I went to Bethlehem Public Schools, graduated from Liberty High School in 19, uh, in 1967, <laughs> and I... Um, started working at the steel in 1973. So when, you know, growing up at that time, of course, this is the behemoth, right? This is a functioning steel plant in the middle of a town. Did you always know you were destined for working in the plant? Oh, no, I, I swore that I, I'm never going to go and work at the steel company. Uh, everybody else is working at the steel company. I That's not a place where I'm going to forge my future. It wasn't in my five-year plan. Um, but um, I had uh, gone to school for digital data processing in 1967 when it had just begun. Yeah. And I did not follow through on that. And uh, I had thought, oh, my, that's going to be more boring than like accounting or working in an office somewhere. So. Uh, I went to work at the steel in 1973 and I started in the beam yards and I had a choice to go into the, the iron foundry or the boiler house and Dick D'Agostino, who was the uh, employment uh, uh, gentleman at the steel said, you can go to the iron foundry and you're going to get a shovel and you will be shoveling sand. If you go to the boiler house, you're going to get a shovel and you'll be shoveling ash because at that time, the boiler house was pretty much all coal fired and oil fired. But uh, uh, he said, and you'll be going to the beam yards. And when he did not mention a shovel to go to the beam yards, I said, I pick that. And of course, uh, the first, first week I got there, they said, here's your shovel. You're going to go down underneath the mills and underneath the the gags where they count, measure, and uh, grade the steel, and you're going to be shoveling up grease. So they gave you a shovel, and they 
lit a fire barrel and you heat the shovel up in the fire barrel and then scrape this grease off of the the machinery and put it in this big giant bucket, which they took out at the end of the day. Well, that only lasted for a couple of weeks. And I was in the beam yards for three weeks. And um, uh, another gentleman and I went into the scheduling clerk and said, uh, uh, you know, I have some college background. And this other fellow was in Lehigh at the time. And he said, yeah, I'm, I'm going to Lehigh and I'm going to graduate soon. And do you have anything else for us? And Eddie Hudak, who was the scheduling clerk, said, well, we don't have much of that here. Uh, but you can get uh, a job as a slip maker, saw marker, learner, where you were to measure the beams, grade them, and ship them out. So three weeks in the steel at $3.15 an hour, um, I was making um, about $100 over that a week with incentive because the slip makers and the saw markers were counting the production and shipping it out. So we had a direct incentive rate. And I stayed there for nearly two years before I got laid off. So that was that was pretty good. And uh, of course, uh, when you're in a situation like that, you have to work all three shifts, sometimes in the same week. But it was good money and um, I was starting a family. So that's where I began my career at the Steel. At the Steel at that time, you know, it's still very much... Um like I had mentioned, just booming, right? It's booming. But is there a little bit of a wane happening in the 1970s that was apparent for well, some of the workers? Andrea, when I, when I first started there, uh, the fellows in the beam yards, the older guys said, hey, kid, uh, do yourself a favor. Get out of here. This place is going down. It's going to be belly up in no time. And I thought, there's 13,000 people working here. How is how, how is that possible? And it, it took many years. It took probably uh, 10 years of pretty much full employment until I started getting laid off in the early mid 80s. And then it became apparent that, uh, uh, OK, so this place is declining. And how long can I stay here? Well, I was blessed enough to stay until 1998. And that's when uh, I got the boot. And I immediately went to school uh, at the uh, community college, and I took radio and TV, and I got a degree in uh, media arts. And uh, soon after that, I went back to work for another six months and then got laid off for the final time on Halloween. And we're approaching Halloween, so we're approaching my anniversary date of uh, my end time at the Steel. So while you were working in the plant, um, did you were you viewing anything happening around you within an artistic lens? Were you thinking creatively about that experience? Sometimes we 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 look at art and industry and how do they kind of dovetail together? Well, uh, it's funny that you say that because uh, my first experience is I looked around the steel and I thought, my God, this place is so old, they're running a steam engine to produce uh, beams from the rolling mill. How, how ancient is that? I mean, these steam engines were from the turn of the last century, uh, but they were humongous and they were rated at 100,000 to unlimited 
horsepower. These engines were so powerful that they would break the rolls that produced the beams at any given moment. If there was too much uh, exuberation on the count on the uh, uh, part of the uh, uh, operator, or if the steel coming out of the soaking pits was too cold. And I want to stress when I say too cold, that it was probably less than 2000 degrees and it was not malleable enough to go through the rolls and the rolls would break. And then they would have to blow down the mill until they changed the rolls and got it back up and running again. So uh, the place was so old, uh, I I looked at it as a museum in itself. Okay. Uh, And uh, I was with the gang at that time that did uh, major repairs, construction, alterations, and demolition. I was with the riggers from 1975 until my retirement in 1999. Did you have an opportunity to work on the 59-inch mill modernization project? I I absolutely did. And they they took out one of the uh, steam engines. And these steam engines, like I said, were massive. Uh, they were probably 40 to 50 foot long, about 8 to 10 to 12 feet high, uh, and they were probably 15 to 20 feet wide, and they spun at probably 30, 40, 50 revolutions per minute. So you could hear them all over the city, uh, especially at night sleeping not too far away from the steel. I could hear these things and the blowing motors from the blast furnace before I even came to the steel. And it was kind of like that that monster on the forbidden planet with all the noises that you could hear, the uh, saws emitting a high-pitched whining sound when they bit into the steel to cut it, the uh, engines as they were turning and uh, straining to produce the steel, the blast furnace itself when it was... Uh, uh, on blast uh, because they pump air into the furnace to create iron. Um, And uh, all of these noises, it it was such a symphony, but it was a frightening symphony nonetheless, because I had never seen that, not until I went into the steel at, you know, 24 years old. Uh, But before that, you could hear it, you could smell it, you could see it from a distance, but that was it. So getting close to that... Um, to that monster, right? To that to that plant that was really generating the lifeblood of a community of families and keeping everybody going for so long. Well, you have to remember too that it wasn't just the steel company that was providing all these jobs. You had the lumber companies, the brick companies, the uh, ancillary uh, electrical companies, and and all of the stuff that the steel did not make itself had to be procured and brought into the steel. Uh, I mean, we had, uh, our plant was like a city and other plants came out of our plant. Uh, So our plant was probably the mother ship of Bethlehem Steel. And just dating back to the 18, late 1850s, early 1860s, to have all that history surrounding you at all times. And especially if you're working as a rigger, you're doing maintenance on on equipment on machines that existed long before you did and um and you were mentioning the gray mills 
that were modernized then in the early mid 80s, the 59 inch mill uh, project. And we're going to have some of those folks in to the museum for Steel Weekend, October 15th and 16th, and Steelworkers Reunion that weekend. They're going to tell us a little bit about what it was like to work in that modernization process for the mill, how how they decided they needed to take out the steam engines, and what they did to make that one of the more modern mills in the world at the time. Yes, at the time they had a, uh, uh, I believe it was uh, an electrical electric motor that was rated at 10,000 horsepower. And this thing uh, was uh, huge. It was probably 12 to 15 feet high, about the same width and about uh, 16 to 18 feet long. And they had to move this giant motor uh, in where the old steam engine was driven and then hook it up to the mill and have it work. And uh, the turnaround was was pretty seamless. Uh, I've got to say, of course, you know, when you have all these talented people that are working in a plant like that, I mean, you know, we had the best uh, uh, riggers, bricklayers, carpenters, pipe fitters, millwrights uh, of anywhere. I mean, they could do absolutely anything. You could tell them, all right, this is what we're going to do today. And you could see as they were being told what to do, you could see the wheels turning in their head what part they were going to play and how they were going to make this thing actually happen. So it, it was very exciting. Uh, uh, of course, it was also uh, very dirty, very dangerous, very hot in the summer, cold in the winter. Uh, but uh, other than that, it, it, it was a very exciting time. And, you know, just a little bit more on that, on the steelworkers coming together, because it has been 25 years or so since the hot end shut down on the site. And the corporation continued again until early 2000s. But at the museum on October 15th and 16th, with the help of our generous sponsors, and we have about a dozen partners within the community who are helping to put this big event together, and we are inviting all steelworkers and their families to come back to the plant site, share their experiences, share their thoughts on on how far we've come over the last couple of decades. And it's an opportunity for steelworkers to be able to, and, and employees of the company and people who just remember the steel, to be able to relay this to younger generations too, because it's sort of hard. It's hard to envision. It's hard to imagine that this was actually going on in the middle of our city. When you say that, some of the older guys would joke, I can't tell my wife what I do because she wouldn't allow me to to come to work because it's so dangerous. So I tell her that I work for Tasty Cake Baking Company. And of course, (laughs) uh, some of the lines that these guys had uh, were like totally uh, ridiculous, but that's that's how they got through those times. Um, there there were very dangerous jobs, um, and there were very uh, demanding jobs. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I I'm not a, a a big brawny person, and then you see these guys. Uh, one of my first experiences in the blast furnace area was down near the hand rolling mill. And if you have never seen the hand rolling mill operating, 
it, it, it was it, it was like going back to the 1880s because these guys are standing on either side of a, a mill, which looked kind of like a spaghetti making machine. And they would get a set of tongs and they would grab a piece of red hot steel and push it into this mill. And when it started, it might be four to six foot long. And then after the first or second pass, it was now 10 to 12 feet long. And then another couple of passes and it was 20 or 25 feet long. And it's like a red hot snake whipping across the floor. And these guys were so well-schooled in that practice that they knew where to stand, how to grab it, when to grab it, and how to shove it back into the mill to make one of the finest pieces of tooled steel in the United States, in the world at that time. And, And these guys were all big Hungarians, Polacks, Czechoslovakians, uh, Italians, um, um, uh, and, and other nationalities, um, uh, Dutch guys that had farms out in the countryside, and, and they were big, strong bulls, and they would come in there and throw this this steel into this mill and, and make the finest tooled steel in the world. It, it was just uncanny to see that. And that was probably 1975 or 1976. And that mill didn't run too much long after that. And that mill today is, that building is still with us. And I think it will, it's sometimes referred to as the turn and grind shop. Is that the same building? It was between the turn and grind shop and the stock house. It was not in the turn and grind shop. It was not in the stock house. It was between them. And uh, it, it wasn't a very big space, but these guys, they, like I said, they, they fill that space with their brawn and their, and their nerve and their, their fortitude to, to come in there day after day and do that. I mean, um, that's when I found out that a hero just doesn't have this abject fear for a minute or two and then do his job. These guys were actual heroes. They came in and worked in these dangerous conditions with these horrible things that could hurt, maim, or kill you at a moment's notice. And they did it day after day for 25, 30, 35, 40, even 45 years. They did this. Now, to me, those guys were heroes to be able to do that day after day and and, and not just for themselves, it was for their families and for the community and for the steel company. So uh, that that probably impressed me the most, and and that was one of the big lessons I learned. I hear that often from people who were able to work inside the plant or who were employees about the diversity of of working inside the plant, the the heroic nature of the work involved, the ingenuity, the dedication and how the employees were really the best of the best. And they weren't just talking about locally. This was worldwide. There was this belief. So now, you know, as it's approaching sort of the the end of the 90s, the end of the century, and we see the writing on the wall, it's, and the hot end has shut down. Can we talk about your your work proud spirit a little bit? What um, What brought you, what inspired you to work so hard to put this documentary together? Well, when I got laid off in 90, 
I first got laid off in 83, but I got laid off in 96 and I went to school and I managed to finish that education in the media arts department uh, at the community college. And I got a degree and I thought, well, I went back to work and uh, it, it, it was kind of ironic. Uh, the steel was really winding down at that time. There were like 3,500 people working there. And I talked to the guys that I was working with and I said, hey, you know, uh, I, I'd like to interview you and have you talk about what it was like to work at the steel. And they said, no, nah, I'm not interested or, oh, I've got nothing to say or, oh, no, it's, it's, you, no, you don't want to hear it. And, and a lot of them were bitter and angry and resentful. They didn't want to talk about it that, you know, this was the end of their lifetime and the end of their family's working life. I mean, some of them were three and four generation steel workers. So it was the end of time. So they, they really didn't want to discuss it. They didn't want to talk about it. They didn't want to have anything to do with it. And I, um, I kept at it and I found uh, six or seven guys that wanted to talk and I, uh, uh, Touchstone was putting together uh, Prometheus Bound and I, uh, I was starting to do my first video, uh, A View From Inside, at the same time. And as I was doing my interviews, uh, they were... Uh, bringing people in to do uh, music and uh, write a play and uh, produce this 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 large scale work on you know the changing uh, um, picture of Bethlehem, and so a lot of those people had talked to me about my work in the steel and. Uh, it, it, it just kind of blossomed from there. And I met this woman uh, and she had hired a helicopter and had done several interviews uh, of steel workers and said, oh, I, I'm doing a video of the steel. And I said, oh, I've already done one. She's, and she came into my studio, which I had at the banana factory at the time. And uh, she she was taken by my work and I was intrigued by her. Uh, she had gone to Howard University and she was in her, at the time, I think she was in her late 70s or early 80s. And she worked tirelessly with me for like six years. And we produced a two-hour documentary on what the steel company was like from the mid-1800s until the doors closed. And you're talking about Billy. Billy, Billy Nichols Smith, yes. Yeah. And she had gone to Howard for film and filmmaking. So she too had a mission and she had done several uh, uh, videos and several projects and she came here uh, to Bethlehem. Uh, she had family here and they wanted her close because she was uh, you know, getting up in age and they wanted to, uh, you know, be able to see her on a regular basis. And she was living, uh, I think, in uh, uh, Minnesota or out west or Midwest. And uh, she had come here uh, and we worked together for years. And then we would line up interviews and we would talk about a script and we would talk about, uh, you know, people that worked at the steel. And uh, when I was working at Touchstone to produce my own video, I met 
Ed Leskin. Now, Ed has a master's degree in photography, and he is he became my photographic mentor. Uh, this guy knows more about photography than anybody I know, and he knows how to get results, and his results are phenomenal. He does portraiture of steelworkers and of other people, but his steelworker portraits are just unbelievable. A limited amount of light, uh, uh, and, but the features of the steelworkers, he actually captures their essence and their pride. And it, 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 to see his pictures, it, it just is, is uh, uh, astounding. And you'll have an opportunity to see his work at Steel Weekend. We're going to be setting up the Ed Leskin. We're going to have a steelworker portrait studio. If anybody would like to come in and get a picture taken, get a photo taken. And we're also going to be displaying some of his new work that he did this summer at Sparrows Point. So he was capturing steelworkers from other plants, other communities. And we are highlighting shipbuilding Sparrows Point along with the Bethlehem plant for Steel Weekend 2022. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it's amazing in my conversations with Ed, he tries to use minimal. He doesn't try to get too fancy with his tools, with his equipment, but I don't know how he does it, how he's able to pull that essence, as you say, from from the, the subjects that he has. Well, he has a very, very good way about him and he puts people completely at ease and uh, as he's talking to you and taking your picture, he he genuinely wants to know uh, what you are about and how you came to be where you are and what you did. And see, when 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 the when the photographer and the subject become that close, even if it's for a short period of time, uh, the results are, are staggering. And, and his work is, just, I cannot say enough about his work. Uh, he, uh, uh, he managed to get into the steel while it was still running. Uh, he knew a steel worker and they smuggled him in and he took pictures of the plant. Of course, you couldn't get in the plant unless you showed a brass check. Uh, and I don't know how he did it, but in the 80s, Ed got into the plant and took some pictures, not too many, uh, but uh, it, it, it's with that kind of attitude that you get this, this person who is like consumed by the subject matter and the, um, the, the things that he's doing. And I, on the other hand, started carrying, uh, when they started demolishing the steel from the inside, I started carrying a pocket Instamatic. And of course, you weren't allowed to have a camera in the steel. I could have lost my job and had the uh, camera confiscated. But uh, I, I was very careful and not obnoxious and very cautious. And uh, I, I have some pictures of uh, the actual work. So that was kind of intriguing. And so... You, in, in Proud Spirit, you featured Ed Leskin, the photographer, in, in that work. And he had been taking images inside the plant at the time. He's inspiring you to also document what you see. And so I'm really, I'm very much interested in learning, you know, as somebody with an artistic background, 
um, you were you were seeing the end. You were seeing this, and you were also feeling the need to preserve. Is that was a was that part of what inspired you? Well, yes, and not only that. I mean, you can tell people. Oh, yes. Today I was on top of the blast furnace and uh, we brought up the big bell and we uh, took the old one out. And, you know, you can say that, but just in saying that it does not lend you an interpretation of what's actually taking place. So these images actually put story credence to uh, the story I was telling. And uh, you, you cannot uh, imagine it unless you actually see it. And, and that's what the photographs actually helped to do. And along with the interviews, it, it became a, a very compelling work of art. And, uh, I, I'm very proud of all the videos that I have done. And there are, uh, I think four right now, including proud spirit. Uh, I started out with, um, a view from inside, and that was in, uh, I released that in 1998. And then shortly after that, uh, we had a, um, an exhibit with Clarence Snyder, who was a photographer at the Steel, hired by the Steel, uh, Ed Leskin and myself. And um, that had uh, taken place um, in, I believe, 18, uh, 19... 98 at the banana factory. And then uh, I released in uh, concert with that uh, stories of steel. And then in 2000 or 2001, uh, I released the steel way of life, which I had worked directly with historic Bethlehem to create. And, and that is stories surrounding the steel, not so much the focus on the steel worker, but the steel families, the neighborhoods, the ethnic backgrounds, the cultural diversity. And, and that was, uh, uh, that was a, a, a very wonderful project. And I really enjoyed that because it was a little more varied than just interviewing steel workers and talking about the work. Uh, you know, it talked about the neighborhoods. It talked about, you know, you would, you would walk from one end of the South side to the other. And as you would walk, you would hear uh, the music changing. You would smell the foods and they would change. And then you would see uh, the uh, language and they were different. And the, the, the people all had the same thing in mind. I'm here in America. I am forging a new way of life. I came here and all of this is now happening and I am part of it. And, you know, to be a part of that, uh, it, it was big. It, it was a, a major thing. And you could say I was part of the steel. I worked at the steel. I made the beams that went into the Versano Narrows Bridge. I made the steel that went into the Golden Gate. I made the... the uh, a platform that the uh, space uh, shots launched from. Uh, you know, I did this, I did that, and and with with all these very talented people, it, it it just it escalated, it grew, and then it got to the point where it could grow no more. So it started uh, consuming itself. So there is no place in the world like this city, and the the sort of um, 
the fabric of identity that is here. Do you see, even though things have changed, the landscape has changed, do you see that there's a continued sort of reverberation or vibration from from those times that is woven into perhaps the creativity of artists today? I think when you have that many people that are so diverse in their uh, vocations and their nationalities and their cultures, you are going to get the cream coming to the top always. And when that happens, uh, you have uh, the result is always much greater than the sum of its parts. Uh, Art-wise, uh, uh, Linny Fowler probably hit the nail on the head when she began the Banana Factory. And um, uh, I spent, I, in fact, I'm, I still have a studio there, but I spent a lot of time there. And a lot of the other artists uh, also uh, were intrigued by the steel. And so they would go and paint and they would go and try and take pictures. Well, you couldn't get in, uh, but they, they, there still exists that that people want to know about. And so you have, uh, now you can get very close and paint the blast furnaces and see the old uh, iron foundry and and hear about uh, this stockhouse and the turn and grind. Uh, but uh, Andrea, you're only looking at like maybe five or 10% of what was originally here. So uh, it, it's, it's, it's kind of up to me and whoever else remembers any of this stuff to to kind of get uh, get this stuff down and either write it or uh, use uh, video or modern media to portray what took place because uh, it's gone. In order to really relay that message or convey that message to young people, to young generations, you're going to need mixed media, right? Because how else better to then evoke so much of, of the... Um, it's, it's a complex um, feeling. It's a complex story. It involves scale and size and, and sound and, and emotion. Yeah. And, and, and part of that story uh, was, um, was done by some great storytellers. Uh, J.O. Callahan uh, comes to mind um, during the, uh, the Steel Fest, the first one, uh, and the Prometheus Bound, uh, Jay O'Callaghan came to Lehigh and the community college, and he told his story, Pouring the Sun. And uh, he got the stories from the original steel workers and conveyed it. And I was blessed enough to get some of these people into my projects, mine and Billy's project. Uh, we had a fellow that started at the steel in 1925, John Baberick. And he was uh, a welder for many years. He worked until, uh, I believe it was 1959. And he recently passed. He was, he was like uh, 95 or 96 years old when I, uh, interviewed him and he had the stories. Uh, and then um, John Waldoni, he was instrumental in 
uh, starting the union in the Bethlehem plant. Uh, and uh, he started in 1932. And I was blessed enough to interview him. And he talked about his time uh, starting the union and working at the steel. And then I worked with some guys that were great storytellers, Richie Check, the Check family. There were uh, 14, 14 children and 11 of the 14 worked at Bethlehem Steel. And together they amassed over 440 years working in Bethlehem Steel in Bethlehem. Now that's a legacy. And you're never going to see that again, ever, anywhere. But you can see it in the work that you and that Billy worked so hard on in Proud Spirit. And I, when I first saw that, um, not too long ago, about, I guess, maybe about a, a year ago or so, maybe. And I was blown away at the, the stories. I was blown away by the, the representation of the people that you had talking, the different perspectives the stories that they were sharing. And um, I think you did an incredible job really bringing that, that story to light. And you, you went back, it's historical. It's um, and then it also takes us to, to the end. And I, I um, uh, think you did a fantastic and unbelievable job. I'm putting that together. It was definitely a labor of love. Well, thank you. But uh, as as you said, uh, with Billy and with Ed and all of the other principals, uh, it it uh, it could not have been done without all of those people and without every single person that was interviewed and that uh, came to talk about the steel. Uh, and and a lot of them didn't want to talk. And a lot of them didn't talk. And so uh, it, it's still a struggle, a battle to get people to talk about it. And the Steelworkers Archives, which uh, Billy and I and a few other principals started, is still going and still going strong. And uh, that is how we're going to convey these stories and visualizations into the future. And uh, let's hope we can get more stories and more people involved because once the last steel worker goes, that's hopefully not gonna be the end of the story if we have uh, some, some of these things going forward. Mm -hmm. And we're so happy to be co-hosting Steel Weekend and Steelworkers Reunion with the Steelworkers Archives. And um, it is the work that they are doing, continue to do. And to have the foresight at that time to be jumping right on it, you know, in the late 90s, as far back as, right? Mm -hmm. And just knowing we need to capture these moments, we need to capture these stories. And to be able to have known how to to engage like that when you did, I think is, is um, it was um, unbelievable. And um, we are tremendously grateful as a community to have those resources available to us still yet today. At Steel Weekend on October 15th and 16th, the Steelworkers Archives is going to be hosting, monitoring, an open mic. So we look to capture additional stories. So firsthand, visitors coming to Steel Weekend will be able to hear some of these stories, some perhaps for the very first time. So it's going to be an exciting moment. 
to continue to hear them. And hope and we may have to censor, right? <laughs> Mike Dwanzik is going to have his uh, his work cut out for him. Yeah, so, Mike's a great yeah. guy. He worked at the Blast Furnace for many years. And uh, we recently lost uh, one of our riggers. And um, I'm not going to mention his name, but I am going to relay just a short little story of one of the incidents that took place uh, we were rebuilding the sea furnace, and at the bottom of the furnace, uh, we had gutted the entire furnace. We took all of the brick out. We cut a huge hole in it, huge, I mean like a, uh, like a six-foot by ten-foot hole to get a little uh, uh, machine in there to clean out the, the bottom of the furnace. But there is carbon block on the bottom. It's thick. It's four-foot thick and four to six foot square and they place these bricks in there and it's supposed to prevent the china syndrome because the hot metal would melt through any other metal that it came in contact with so you have to drill holes in this carbon block and it has so much old steel ash iron and uh, all these other things on top of it that you have to drill it uh, with um, a jackhammer and a jackhammer bit. And then you load um, dynamite into those holes and you drill maybe 20 or 30 holes and you pack it with dynamite. Well, one of the guys was a little exuberant in how much dynamite he put in his uh, designated area and they cover it with a rope mat and then they blow a whistle for about a minute and then they set the charge. Well, this charge was so huge that it blew some of this carbon brick, carbon block out the top of the furnace into the river and over to the other side of the river. And one of the fellows in our gang stumbles into the blast furnace shanty and he had poured a bottle of ketchup all over himself and came stumbling into the into the uh, shanty and say they got me they got me <laughs> i fear i'm dead and he fell on the ground and and you could tell right away that it was a front but it got the foreman so worked up he was yelling and cursing at this guy for the rest of the month <laughs> don't you ever go near that furnace again you're not allowed <laughs> Yeah. But, you know, it's it's funny that you mentioned that because that kind of really shows the juxtaposition of the humor and the danger. Yeah. And it sounds like you needed to have both to work in this environment. Yeah. Yeah, you did. When you're when you're on that top rail on top of the blast furnace and you're you're you've got your legs wrapped around the beam and you've got one arm free because you've got to pull something up there and it's like uh try not to look down and try to think of something uh joyful because if anything goes wrong it's not going to be a joyful ending <laughs> so during steel weekend we we have the sharing of stories we have ed and the portrait studio and looking at some of his work, his work from Bethlehem, his work from Sparrows Point. We're going to be showcasing a number of your videos on social media. So if you want to check out the NMIH Facebook page leading up to Steel Weekend in the middle of October, we'll be releasing clips of Proud Spirit. 
so that everyone can can really hear that to get that back out into the community. Oh, Again. well, that's exciting. Yeah. Thank you so much yes. for doing that. That's uh, that's going to be something. This is uh, We had uh, a public showing of this video. Uh, we had about 220 people in the gallery at the Banana Factory. It was overflowing. There was standing room only. And uh, Billy and I put that together, that event together ourselves. And still, the the response was just overwhelming, and um, I, I'm so proud of that. But it it after that, uh, it it did not garner enough interest, and now we're bringing it back into the light, and I'm very excited about that. It's important. I think this is an important message and a great time to get this back out, especially to a new group of viewers, and to learn more and to experience. And speaking of those, the younger generation's new group of viewers uh, for Proud Spirit, um, what are what are some of your thoughts on enculturating the next generation, or or education, arts education, and um, you know keeping keeping some of this alive in that way? Uh, one of the greatest things is to have somebody actually speak on it. And then show some of the movies and then show some of the clips uh, w- without somebody who uh, has that background or is uh, uh, interested enough to make that part of their future. Uh, you're not going to get the crux of what's actually taken place. And to get that, you need somebody telling you. Oh, so you you want a, a job, do you? Well, uh, okay, so you got this job, but don't forget to bring your brass check in every day because if you don't show it to the guard, by the time you get to where you're supposed to be working, there's going to be a discipline waiting for you because you have to show your brass check. Oh, uh, you didn't bring a raincoat today? Well, guess what? You're working out in the rain all day today. So, you know, make sure you're prepared. And, uh, you know, these things, uh, they were the norm, you know. Oh, you, you, don't, you, you don't have a long johns? Well, you're going to be working. I know it's summer, but you're going to be working on the hotbed. And you need those long johns to protect your legs from being burned by the hot, steel beams that are coming alongside of you. And you wouldn't think that long johns would be needed in the middle of summer, but you have to protect yourself. And these are how these steel workers protected themselves. You know, you see a guy wearing a wool coat up on top of the batteries at the Coke works. Well, it's summertime and the temperature up there is, you know, 140 degrees. Why are you wearing a a wool coat, well, wool protects you from that heat. Wool also uh, keeps you warm when it's wet, uh, and it will keep you cool when the temperature raises above a certain point. So uh, these old guys, they learned these things, and they would tell these young guys. And a lot of the young guys, would, ah, they, you know, we don't need it. But you listen. And, and you realize that, oh, I remember when, you know, what's his name told me about, you know, burning this certain thing. If it snaps or if it pops or if something goes wrong, I'm going to be one hurting puppy. So you have to listen to the voice of the experience that came before you. And, and that voice uh, looms very large. And to convey that to people today, 
Again, you need somebody to tell them. You need somebody to show them. Otherwise, they don't. They don't know. They they have no concept. You know exactly. And I, you, that's a an important point. I think if we can sort of build upon a um, um, accumulative experience, right? We become stronger. Mm-hmm. And at the museum, we try to do that. Look, you know, understanding our industrial past, and then really trying to inspire young people. The changing nature of work is. Mm-hmm fascinating people are talking about how things are different now you can work from home now yeah there's so much flexibility in work well you and, can't work at home <laughs> and maybe we're company. telling her no we couldn't you couldn't but um now you you have to get a um a joe magarak exhibit do you know joe magarak who's joe magarak Joe Magarak was who you called when there was a problem that nobody could solve. Oh. Joe Magarak was the imaginary immigrant steelworker who had learned his craft, his trade, coming up from a 13-year-old kid that came into the steel as a water boy, watering the, the horses and the mules, and then going into a production department. And he's a mythical creature. He's like Paul Bunyan. He's, um, uh, doesn't exist, but you need that, that cultural ethnic background, uh, of all of these years, uh, to explain, uh, what Joe Magarak really knows. He knows all, you know, and, uh, we have to get a picture of Joe Magarak, but none exists because there is no Joe Magarak. Um, Roger Latsko has a song about Joe Magarak being the king of steel. So you'll have to listen to that. Yes, I, this sounds really interesting. I um, thought everybody yeah, knew who Joe no. Magarak was. <laughs> so you we, should know who have, <laughs> Joe Magarak was. <laughs> when, yeah. when, you, when you see your father, ask, ask him if him. he knows who Joe Magarak is. <laughs> He'll be like, yeah, I worked with him down in uh, that's right. that's the exactly, Sock and Mills. That's exactly what yeah. he's going to say. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be interested to hear that. And I do have to ask you one more question about magic. Well, uh, in 1983, I got laid off. And uh, I was off for probably oh, 15 months. And I got a job uh, delivering balloons. And the fellow that owned the company uh, taught me how to make balloon animals, and he taught me some magic. And from that point, uh, I, I could not get enough of the variety arts. I learned juggling. I learned balloon animals. I learned magic. I learned mime. I learned um, uh, vocalizations. I learned storytelling. And... While I was laid off, uh, I was doing this for very small money. But when I went back, all of the guys that I worked with found out what I was doing. And they said, oh, look, uh, you know, uh, come, come over to my house because, you know, my kid's, you know, six years old and I, I need to have somebody for his birthday. And then, oh, my grandmother just had her uh, anniversary. Can you come and do something for my grandmother and grandfather? And then it just escalated. And by 1984 or 1985, 
uh, I had taken classes in all of those things and learned the variety arts and magic stuck. And um, I joined the International Brotherhood of Magicians. I joined the Magicians Alliance of Eastern States. I joined Allentown Society of Magicians. And I have been uh, president of the Allentown Society of Magicians uh, five times. And uh, that lets you know that it's a small group. <laughs> so <laughs> if they would elect me five times, what could, what could be the cause of that? Well, it's not a large group. There's, right now, there's probably, uh, I would say, 10 or 12 active members. Uh, very few are full-time. I was a part-time pro. And uh, I, it just kept going. And from like 1984, 1985, I was doing 150 shows a year including having a full-time job at the steel company. So uh, I still go out as a magician occasionally, and it's uh, something that I still love to do. And it is not my vocation. I would say it's an avocation or uh, it's not my bread and butter, but it sure is dessert. And I still enjoy doing it. So, Well, I think that's inspiring. You're always learning and always creating and that's wonderful. Are you working on any photography at the moment that you'd like to share? Envision is coming up at the Banana Factory in November, and I'm going to try and put a display together for that. Uh, uh, there's just not enough time. Uh, I have so much to do at home. I have uh, my uh, main job now is Diva Support for uh, my sweetheart, Kim Hogan, who is uh, the most amazing mosaic artist you will ever meet. And she just came off of a weekend-long intensive mosaic class that she taught at our home for probably 12 people. And it lasted the whole weekend long. And Uh, She is so amazing that the people that made these mosaics, when they left and took their mosaics with them, every one was a fantastic work of art unto itself. And I just couldn't believe it. And I still can't believe it because uh, she's so creative and she teaches where we live and she teaches at the Banana Factory and she has all of these commissions at different places in uh, most of the hospitals she has her mosaic work locally and she just put one in the Lancaster Penn State Hospital which uh, just had a reception this past week so uh, yes uh, being around artists also helps your own creativity so yeah that's wonderful and and Kim Hogan a marvelous mosaic artist and I know that her mosaics in the hospitals will be bringing healing in places where it is very much needed right now so it's it's wonderful yeah um so I I thank you again and I would like to thank the Lehigh Valley Arts Podcast for having us here today to have this really engaging and funny conversation and I've learned a lot from you Bruce Bruce Ward it's been wonderful talking with you and Steel Weekend, again, October 15th and 16th, it's going to be celebrating all things steel held on at the museum on the larger Steel Stacks campus as well from 10 to 5, Saturday and Sunday. 
And you can visit our website at nmih.org to learn more and see the schedule. You can also access our digital and virtual programming on our social media pages, including those compelling clips from Proud Spirit, the work of Bruce Ward and Billy Nichol Smith about the closing of the plant and recording and hearing some of those firsthand narratives that are just um, the best way to understand um, a very complex and amazing. And, and we continue to celebrate our history and our social identity here in Bethlehem. Uh, we are working with the Baltimore Museum of Industry as well and the Banana Factory, the Bethlehem Area Public Library, Bethlehem Area School District, PBS 39, Lehigh University Art Galleries, South Bethlehem Historical Society, and St. John's Windish Church. So I'm so proud for us to have all of these wonderful sponsors working to put this together. It could not happen without each and every one of them. And also our generous sponsors, Northampton and Lehigh County, PA Steel, One Group, Hank and Joanne Barnett, the MMZ Foundation, and Weiss and Giant Markets, who will be helping us supply the tastes of the South Bethlehem Steelworkers, goulash and halupkis and halushkis. So get down there early so you don't miss out. They will be there until quantities are, are gone. So thank you again. Thanks for tuning in to the Lehigh Valley Arts Podcast, a Steel Pixel original series. Don't forget to like the podcast, leave us a review, and follow us on both social media and streaming services at Lehigh Valley Arts Podcast. <laughs>